You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. Frontline Reporting, the GQ session chaired by the features editor of British GQ, Jonathan Heath. Hello and welcome, all of you. Thank you for coming. This is the GQ magazine panel discussion on frontline reporting. And let me just do some introductions first to who we all are. Giles Julie, um, over there, um, a photographer uh, and photojournalist. Um, we have Tony Borden here, who is the founder of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Ed Caesar, journalist and author, who had a star contributor, I must say, to GQ. Um, and here we have Sean Langan. Uh, journalist and documentary filmmaker. So um, I just wanted to start things off um, with talking about Marie Colvin, who I'm sure many of you know um, and know of. Um, She uh, is almost a mythical um, uh, frontline journalist who was one of the bravest and and reported some of the, the, the most difficult and riskiest places in the world. Um, sadly, in 2012, um, she was reporting from Homs in Syria um, and was killed um, along with her French photographer. Um, <clears throat> this was actually taken, a cu- a, I think, a couple of days before, before she was targeted by Assad's uh, rockets um, when she was working out there. Um, I mean, I just wanted to talk about her briefly because it's just an interesting place to start about um, the evolution of war photography, for, for war uh, journalism, for, for, and where it's come from and what it is now, and the risks that these journalists take, and why they take these risks, um, and should they be taking these risks. Um, I guess a good place to start um, would be talking to, if I can forward it to the next slide. Uh, here we are. There we go. Um, <clears throat> this is actually, this, in fact, is actually um, one of uh, a piece is going to run in GQ in about in a few weeks' time. So you have a you have a special insight here that's not yet published. But this is a piece that Ed did for us um, in February, I think it was, um, and he went out to the Central Central African Republic to report on the the conflict there. And um, I thought I would just begin by asking Ed to tell us a bit about his experience out there and why um, he was drawn to go and report um, from that place. Ed. Uh, thanks. <coughs> that is a picture of. It's sorry. It's quite early in the morning for those kind of pictures. But yeah. that's a picture of a guy who has been killed by a mob on the side of the road, and we uh, we arrived just as they were doing these things to him. And uh, Central African Republic is in the grip of this profound catastrophe, uh, and the latest manifestation of it is the Christian majority are hounding out the Muslims, so the minor- minority Muslim group. And things like this are happening all over the country, all day, every day, right now. So I thought the Central African Republic was, um, was really underreported as a story. I, you know, the French media were interested. Uh, there was some interest from Channel 4, who sent Alex Thompson out there, and Sky News did something. There was, some, you know, there was occasional things on BBC Radio and some BBC TV, but there was no, no one had written about it in an interesting or incisive way, and that's normally what sets 
you know, that's what sets up a feature for me, is that there's an underreported story and you feel like you should go and tell the story. So I spent some time out there and saw lots of horrible things. <coughs> and, you know, this is the product, essentially. So in 10 days' time, the readers of GQ can read 5,000 words about what's happening in the Central African Republic. Um, I'm not sure what, you know, how much difference it's going to make to the people of the Central African Republic, but, um, it, you know... You feel better reporting things that other people are not reporting. Why? I wanted to ask you, Ed, because you know I, I, I work on GQ as a feature director. I should have probably said that. So I, I work with Ed when he, uh, he has his ideas and we, we, we put the ideas together and then, then he goes off. Um, is it important about who you're writing it for? Do you think about your audience when you're out there in, the, in, 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 in hairy I think, I think about conflict? you, Johnny. Right. <laughs> Good, I should hope so. <laughs> um, <coughs> I... I um, I don't think particularly in terms of um, audience other than I tried, I'm trying to write for an intelligent person who might not have read anything about mm. this situation. Mm. So someone who uh, is not geopolitically illiterate, <clears throat> but also if they've, they might have noticed this on the news, that's roughly where I'm pitching it. Mm. So part of my job is to kind of almost be a school teacher and say for a thousand words what's happening and the other parts are the more narrative driven elements of the story so. how difficult is it when you see you know when you're in the middle of a street in a country you, you know you've never been to before and you don't know how difficult it was to see you know these kind of atrocities i mean do you switch off does part of you switch off are you just is it you no, doing you a don't. job are you um so that that happened at about five past nine on Wednesday morning. I think it was like the 28th of January. I remember that because I'd arrived on an Air France flight uh, on Tuesday evening, and I went to the hotel. Uh, I met the photographer, Jerome Delay. Uh, I met driver and fixer. And the next morning at 8.30, we went out into the streets of <coughs> Bongi, and uh, it was 8.30 when we left the hotel. By 8.45, <laughs> we were you know, coming under fire and having to get out the car and, you know, go and find some shelter behind a wall. By 9.05, a group of guys had found a Muslim and hacked him to death. And then the same group went up the road and did exactly the same to another guy they found. We saw it happening. We went down. We saw a guy who was deader than dead. And, you know, all of that had happened in the first 45 minutes of mm -hmm. my you know, working day. Right. And I was like, if there had been a flight at 10 o'clock that morning out of Bongi, I probably had enough for a feature, you mm. know. Right. But the, um, so I was profoundly, I know it's not cool to say this amongst, um, you know, people who do this kind of reporting, but that got under my skin pretty mm. badly because it's just the shot, you know, the previous morning I'd had a coffee in Paris <laughs> with some pals. I mean, maybe and, uh, you know, it's six hours. It's a six hours direct flight yeah. from Paris to yeah. to, to Bangui. It's so surreal yeah. to suddenly be in this situation. I mean, maybe uh, Giles and Sean, you can. I, I'd like to kind of. And I, I mean, the most I've ever, the closest I've ever been to, to danger is, you know, kind of like a Harry Styles' Twitter feed kind of thing. I always joke <laughs> about that. But um, you know, what kind of man or woman does it take to go and be a to, to put yourself at risk and go and be a, a, a war reporter? Is it? He, he, you know, you guys crazy or what? <laughs> I, I actually I don't think there's a particular type. <coughs> um, 
you do meet, and they're obviously in Kabul, when, when you're in these places, you, you meet, I think, uh, and there are a lot of women, actually, they're some of the best photographers I know, uh, and the French, are sort of, I think, because they read Tintin as children, they love <laughs> these adventures, but uh, I actually, I mean, the, the, the headline there is other people, and, and uh, it, it's like the other, that, that's what drove me, it wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't initially drawn to combat uh, or, or adrenaline. I never set out to be a war correspondent or an adre adrenaline junkie. Mm. <clears throat> and then I think perhaps um, overcome by events, you then, uh, you are then drawn to these things. And I, I was actually drawn to genuinely just as a journalist. And my, my background is, uh, I mean, I have TV now, but it was magazines. And I think a big difference in war reporting is having the time for a magazine and the luxury you get stories which those feeding the machine, the 24-hour news machine, don't get. So, uh, and it's a great luxury. And I, I, um, one of the documentaries I made, which um, about the war, insurgency war in Iraq, uh, wasn't being done by the international news media. It was after the collapse of the, the statue of Saddam, and all the news media had spent millions on the invasion. And I wanted to do a documentary on the insurgency, and it was actually GQ magazine who paid for my <coughs> flight. The BBC then didn't want me to give credit to GQ magazine, a style magazine, for this documentary on the war. But so having the luxury of time. But so whatever reasons you go there, and the reason why you're drawn, I think I always felt though inevitably I was a little bit like Icarus flying ever closer to the sun. That I then you do then carry on. It does get under your skin. I don't think you have to say you don't want to admit that this got under your skin, because when it stops getting under your skin, mm. uh, you become jaded, and then it's like this machismo. Uh, but eventually, I was I'm war. There's a certain type of there's a certain type of war reporter for who for whom yeah. saying something like that you're out of the group. You yeah, know? unless it's all just copy and it's all just. Is this a new right. thing then? Is this is this you know is but, it traditionally has it been very much you know you go there you be a, a macho a macho man and you stick it out and you don't talk about your feelings. But is it is this a I there don't is know. that classic? I mean the the, the Errol Flynn son. That's uh, right. Yeah, Sean Flynn. <coughs> Photographer in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, Tim Page. There is that. There is definitely that um, spitting on death. And we know. We were, actually, we were talking last night. This French war correspondent, who I won't mention his name, but he's, they're, they're a very small group. You meet them around the world, and you have this real camaraderie built up on really having gone through these intense experiences. But I remember my wife, my then wife, because like most people who cover wars, I'm divorced. <laughs> It was the insurgents' <laughs> fault and George Bush, my divorce. Ed, you're still team. married, though, right? I'm still married. Okay. Oh, you're still married. <laughs> but I remember I was going back for the birth of my second son, and this French war correspondent said, why, why are you going back? And I was filming at the time with the insurgents in Fallujah. And I said, well, my wife, she's pregnant. And he went, what? And I thought it was a language. And I went, she's pregnant. And he went, putain, but this is war. <laughs> and I thought I never wanted to become yeah. that sort of thing, that I put <coughs> war before the birth of my children. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's just skip on and let's skip past that, actually. Um, I mean, this is just briefly, we'll talk about another piece you did for us, Ed, um, um, which was, this was last year, I think, wasn't it, the yeah. GQ? This kind of focused on the idea and the evolution um, of the war correspondent. And, um, I mean, you met Sebastian Junger out in New York. Um, what was, I mean, he was, and he was a hero of yours, I take it. And, and what was I'll say, it? I read a piece by, by him about the Niger Delta, about the, there, was a, there was a group of rebels who'd seized the oil control in the Niger Delta. He wrote this incredible piece about it. And I thought, that is the kind of journalism that I would like to do, that sort of thing. 
Um, but he was interesting because he had sworn off, he said, after Tim died, who Tim Hetherington was his close collaborator on a film called Restrepo and in various other places. And after Tim Hetherington died in Misrata, he swore off it. He said, I'm never, it's not that I, you know, I'm not ever covering another conflict. That's it. It's over. You know, I'm 52 years old. Time, you know, that's, that's enough. Um, so I thought it was an interesting moment to talk to him about, you know, why he'd made that decision, but also to talk to 20 other foreign correspondents about how they felt uh, about their trade, mm. effectively. I mean, I wanted to... I mean, Giles, we wanted to expand on this a bit at this point. I mean... I'm just sorry. I've just realised yeah. how old-fashioned I am because I realise <laughs> I still dress like the guy on the left. <laughs> well, I mean, right. it's it. It's the guy who writes a, a rave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a it's Coldplay gig. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting now it, to, to, to discuss whether or not, you know... You know, you train for a long time for your, to, to hone your craft and get the skills you have, but now you, can anyone with an iPhone become a war photographer? It's, you know, and be in the right place at the right time. But I mean, everyone is a photographer. As soon as you take a picture, you're a photographer. Mm. But whether you're a good one or not is another question. Mm. Um, I was going to bring up your slides, actually, Giles. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this was because I just wanted to bring up a few sort of questions, really, as much as anything else. A lot of times, as a photojournalist, I get told the profession is, is dead and that photography now belongs to anybody who can take pictures, so we don't need photographers. Um, and also there's a big debate going on about whether photojournalists manipulate pictures and change pictures. And people look back at a lot of historical photojournalism with a kind of reverence and an idea that this was a, a glorified period. And, and actually, I mean, take this picture, which is uh, Fenton's uh, picture from the Crimea, um, one of the first ever war photographs um, taken. It's called The Valley of Death. And actually, it's now been found out that the cannonballs on here, he manipulated, he moved a lot of them to take the picture in the first place. And then actually a lot of them have been painted in, the ones on, on the path you can actually see are not, are not real. Um, so it's a, it's a manipulated picture, but does that make it less powerful? No, they weren't necessary anyway. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, and let's, <coughs> let's get back to, this is a Kappa now, isn't it? Yeah, and th this is Kappa, and again, this is you know, another part of the, the debate about technology. Because photography has always been pushed by technology. It's always been the cutting edge of technology. And again, people look back at Kappa as this kind of romantic period of photojournalism. And you know, this picture particularly, for me, I think is the picture that, that captures combat or, or war more than any other photograph, the chaos, the madness, the, the, the sort of lack of clarity that is actually when you are being shot at. But again, you know, he was seen as revolutionising photojournalism by taking this picture. But it was only because the small Leica had just been invented and he was using a small 35mm camera for the first time. So this was the equivalent, really, of somebody shooting it on an iPhone, shooting it using the latest technology. It was cutting edge for its time. Part of, I mean, part of we just, something we discussed before is this idea that, you know, um, someone like, let's go to the next picture, which is a Don McCullen photograph. Now, you know, you could say that a Don McCullen <coughs> photograph comes with a certain authenticity and, a, mm -hmm. and a certain, there's a certain amount of, of trust because he's a, a prolific name that you know that what you're seeing in terms of the picture is real and I guess uh, authentic in some regard but is it, you know, I was going to ask you whether you think it's harming your kind of craft and your work because now the kind of, the, some of the images that are coming out of, out of Syria and, and these areas of conflict which are harder to monitor and hard to authenticate because they're taken by civilian journalists, okay, mm -hmm. I guess we can talk to you about that Tony but does that, does that, is there a lack of trust now with, with photography? I don't you know, know if we can ask the I, audience. I think um, 
the big problem is, is certainly for newspapers, everything is driven by speed and who can get the images first. So, you know, when Don McCullen was working, he would take his photographs, he would spend a few weeks out in the field, come back with, with rolls of black and white film, end up in a hotel back in Saigon, get them developed, hang out there for a couple of weeks, choose the images, send them over. So there was time for consideration and really, you know, as a photographer, I often find it's weeks later I see the story, I see the pictures, how they should go together. Mm. You don't have that luxury now because now people want that image sent down a phone within minutes of taking it. Mm. And they will take a picture without wondering who took this picture, why was it taken. So, you know, when you're getting pictures from, from Syria, is that an activist that sent it? Is that somebody from the government that sent it? You have no authentication. Mm. Um, and there was, as you say, there was a certain trust. You know, photographers were like an author. If you, if you read somebody's book, you like their style, you think, I want to read something else by them. People would wait to see Don McCullen's story. And as you say, you would know something about his character and understand what he was telling you. Mm. Um, I don't know, I mean, Giles, it'd be interesting to just to, to, for you just to tell the audience kind of um, your change in terms of, because you, for a long time, you took pictures of musicians mm -hmm. and bands and kind of like, you know, uh, celebrities, I guess you could call yeah. them. Um, but then you had a change of heart and you decided to go into to areas of conflict and document uh, the consequences, I think, is how you describe it, the mm -hmm. consequences of conflict, I guess. Yeah, I mean, getting back to, to your sort of earlier question about you know, whether there's adrenaline when you go and do, you know, how do you end up in these places? I merely was curious about stories. Um, you know, I, I was a, a photographer that photographed, say, bands and, and musicians for a long <coughs> time, and I loved that, but there was always something that I felt I could do more with my photography, and that was telling other people's stories. Um, and it was really that evolved, and then you find yourself closer and closer to conflicts because there are a lot of untold stories and a lot of powerful stories there. So I don't think most of the people I know that work in the profession didn't, you know, there, is the, there are the few adrenaline junkies, but the majority I know are very considered people mm. that want to go and tell these stories and you end up in, in conflict areas by chance. I mean, I am totally risk adverse. If you ask my girlfriend, she thinks I'm the most boring person in the world. Like, I won't go on a roller coaster because I say, why would you want to get scared? Um, I always travel with, with a collection of Agatha Christie CDs. So whenever I'm in a war zone, I'm always like listening to Agatha Christie and Miss Marple. Um, so for me, you know, it's never been about the, the adrenaline. Mm. It's just the stories are there and you have to take those risks, I suppose, mm. to tell them. Mm. Um, let's just flip back. I know you wanted to talk to, about Tim Hetherington's um, series, um, the Sleeping Soldiers series. I know you did also, Ed, but... Well, the, well, the reason I wanted to talk about them was, again, this, this sort of conversation about the fact anyone can take photographs, anyone can take an image now. In a way, the role of the photographer is more important than ever because a photographer is somebody, I think, that sees things in a slightly different way to anybody else. So you could have... <clears throat> you know, this was taken in, in Afghanistan. You could have helmet footage from all the soldiers out there fighting and you see what was going on. It takes a photographer, I would go so far as to say an artist in this case, to look and see an image that nobody else would have taken. Nobody would have thought on their iPhone, oh, I'm going to take some pictures of people sleeping. And yet this says so much about war when you see these, these young guys sleeping in the middle of a war zone. So I think the role of the photographer, as I say, is, is greater than ever because we have to create images that step above the mass of images that are out there. But just, yeah, on a... I mean, I love these photos mm. because um, they're stuck in the Corongal Valley and it's pretty hot and these guys are out there doing, um, you know, fighting Taliban every day. And I think w what Hetherington said was, I wanted to see these guys, or he suddenly saw these guys as their mother saw them. Mm. That's mm. What, that, to me, is the most interesting thing about... There's a whole series of these photos. 
And I think they're just, it's the most incredible work. Well, actually, it? I remember, because um, it is always the, the odd things, which is the, I was up in the, in the Karangal Valley and uh, they spent a lot of time just getting bombed. And, that, and, that. Uh, and I asked them, what do you, what's the first, we were all sleeping outside, and I said, what, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get home? And there are all these guys saying they're going to get laid. And then one of them, <laughs> I didn't look at his face, but he said, I'm going to get me an ice cream. And I looked around and he looked 15 years old. And then he got really embarrassed in front of this peer group. He said, no, I'm going to get laid and then have an ice cream. But uh, Sounds good. Yeah. Do you ever, I was going to ask him in this idea of, you know, you kind of get parachuted in, not literally, but you fly in for, for four or five days or, or, or maybe longer. You're spending time with, with, with guys like these soldiers that are out there doing a job, risking their lives every day for months and months and months. Is there that kind of, do you have any, have any guilt about kind of you're just there to, to document something very quickly and then... Not really. No? There are guys, I mean, I certainly don't feel guilty about the risks that you're taking. Mm. I mean, you know, if you're, you know, the, well, guy, the, the, French, you know, the French soldiers in Central African Republic were all in APCs. You know, we were driving around in a Mitsubishi Pajero, you know, so there's going to be a difference if around hits our mm. car than if it hits mm. theirs. You know, I don't feel bad about that at all. I don't think it's feeling bad, but there is, I know it's, I mean, I, that this story as well, they're, they're, these guys, there's 20 of them, and they spent six months in, in this mountaintop. So you're coming into this hermetically sealed band of, mm. I mean, brothers and yeah. sisters. Uh, and so you do actually, and initially, especially as a, a filming, I'm invading their personal space. Mm. I spent three weeks just bonding with them, and the way to bond with these people is... Uh, to put yourself in the firing line with them. So we had to go out every night, even when I wasn't filming, getting shot at. And once, they, uh, once they've seen you do that, because they got their real reservation, especially British soldiers against the British press, because it doesn't matter if you're BBC, Channel 4, we're all news of the world in their eyes. Uh, <laughs> so you do actually, I've noticed, you have to prove yourself. And then once you, you've proved yourself, they accept you. Mm. And then once you get beyond that initial barrier... It's like traumatized people. There's this real urge amongst combatants, victims, to tell, to share a story. Mm. And I found that the most powerful thing, that people will tell you, initially say, don't intrude on my, you know, they've lost a son or a daughter, and then they open up, and the same as the soldiers, but you have to, have I to find, break time, through. Right? And, and even though you're right, one should never feel bad about one enjoying yourself in a war zone. It's a dirty secret all journalists have, that they, I had a better time covering the war in Baghdad than I did at any nightclub in Ibiza. But I would never want to admit that. <laughs> so you've just done that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually think uh, there is a big difference being parachuted in to the stuff I think we all feel. You get your real... The stuff you really want, which is that personal combination of universal that, that really makes an impact. You can get it on your first day, but I've noticed the difference between long-form and short-form journalism spending six months somewhere, mm. you're, going to get a, a, you're going to start to see things in a different light. Especially, and this is the problem with this instant reporting, uh, war is the fog of war. It's the most difficult thing to make sense of. So I think it, it demands you spend time there. Mm. Can um, I disagree a yeah, little no, bit no, that? Yeah. So as a writer, if, when you turn up somewhere really weird and new, the things that you see in the first two or three days are inevitably yes. the impressions that stay with you. Once you've been there for a week, all this weird becomes shit becomes mm. normal. No, you're right. Yeah. And it, you, you stop writing it down. Mm. It's like, oh, you know, there's a guy over there being, you know, mugged yeah. for his grenades. Right. You know, that's no, just, that's just, that's just, you know, that's yeah. what happens here. Yeah, yeah. 
So you've got to get a sense of the, like the weirdness is what you're there for. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I wanted to, I mean, uh, to talk about how you, because, you know, when you're going to these places of conflict, as we said earlier, it's, you know, it can be chaotic, kind of at best, a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you go home and digest it? I mean, do you go through your notes? Do you phone people up that you're there with? Do you phone up a photographer? How do you kind of make, how do you kind of get through the, the fog, I guess? Go to the pub. Right. Go to the pub, yeah. <laughs> But you have, I mean, when you can, I don't know how anyone else works, but every night when I'm out somewhere, I write up all my notes from the day. So I type them up. So that's like a second filter. Mm. So suddenly things are starting to become more important. Mm. And then that helps me know what I want to do the next day. And then when you get home, you've, you know, you've talked to 50 people, you know, you've got all their phone numbers and you can still call the dude you met somewhere in the middle of yeah. the bush and say, oh, what's happening now? And you get, you're sort of back there again. So you're still reporting once you get home. And I think all, the, you know, basically it percolates for a bit and then a week later I'll sit down and, I mean, I pretty much understood what my opening scene was within half an hour of yeah. starting the, you know, My problem is not coming home for, uh, uh, the more you go away, and you often get that in the media, it's like, I mean, I remember at the BBC, they would say, you know, love your documentary, Sean, but can you not, can you do it about a British uh, subject? Can you make your films in Britain? Because you make a f documentary about a foreign country, foreign story, their surveys tell them you immediately get 50% less audience. If you have to subtitle people, then you lose another. And this has all been disproved anyway, you know, then Borgen's a real success and various films. But... Uh, there's always that pressure, like, oh, do you have to keep telling this miserable story about the other? And I don't, I, by the way, I always think it's a mistake that si stories about serious subjects need to be like your vegetables. I mean, I think it, they should be entertaining as any other form of journalism. But the more I went to the other, I'd fly back, and I was living in Notting Hill during the banker's boom, and I felt more and more disconnected back here. So I w it wasn't a case that I had to keep in touch with my friends in Kabul or Baghdad. I suddenly would come back you could get from Fallujah where there'd be headless corpses on the street and I'd be in Portobello Road that afternoon and I couldn't, I could know, it's like I'd walked through a portal. I think the point is, there's a slightly subtext here that do we really need to do the other? Do we really need to send you to that shitty little place well, which we don't really know of? Mm. But once you go there, you realise we are the weird little place, that the, most of the world is most like that. Most of the world's <laughs> And we're the weird ones and we're living in this sort of bubble which I think everyone who spends a lot of... I, I had this m moment, I think you have to travel for a few years, where I was suddenly, you know, you have the exotic you're talking about when you first go, which is important to capture that. But it's a bit like backpackers who go for this exotic year abroad before coming back to work in banking. I suddenly, one point in my travels after so many years, I realised that we are the exotic, that, that most people have dirty water and their children die of dysentery. And I get this feeling, which I think a lot of people do, that... It's only a matter of time before the other is all over us. And, and there is that sense that increasingly, uh, uh, you know, in, in, as time's gone, it doesn't take much before our bubble is burst. You know, then it, today it's the Crimea and Russia, but it could be, as it was, Bosnia and Europe. So th I, I think this, this feeling that we, we have to explain why you should send mm. your reporters to a middle of nowhere... Um, th well, if not, they'll be coming to our doors pretty soon. You know... Uh, I mean, Tony works with local journalists in, you know, training. Mm -hmm. Like, one of the interesting things about going to a place is that there is almost always, like, some kind of local journalism infrastructure. Mm. And talking to those guys, like what's the daily experience for a reporter, you know, for a local reporter in Syria? 
What is the daily experience with someone in Juarez, like Mexico? That's a myth. Those, those guys yeah. are actually the heroes. Yeah. Mm. The guy, you know, the, the guy doing the crime beat for the Juarez Sentinel or whatever yeah. it is. Mm. You know, can you imagine a worse job? Mm. Tony, maybe you can talk just about your work, what you do sure. at the Institute, and how you kind of, I guess, empower or, or, or teach local journalists <coughs> in these areas of conflict. Well, I share the concern of all of our colleagues about the, the shifting nature of news and news production, how it's putting a huge pressure on old-style values of, of uh, thought and balance and consideration. And um, it really is a pressure. Uh, citizens, citizens' journalism and social media are a complement in a way, um, but they're also a challenge and they undermine, in many ways, the, the great work you guys are doing. Um, but there's a whole huge and growing constituents of people who don't parachute in, mm. and they don't ask themselves, why am I here? Because they're, there. they're stuck there. Mm. They live there. Uh, and it's maybe even wrong to say they're stuck there. We have a Syrian colleague who's moving back to Syria because she can't bear, as you said, she can't bear to be away. So that's just one of the dilemmas we face. And I think that's the flip side of the changing pattern of news these days, because while in many, many respects, uh, it's going to hell in a handbasket, guys, and it's just all bad. And I think at two in the morning, we could talk about this and really decide that the industry is pretty much over. Uh, and I think you can, make, you can construct that argument pretty, pretty straightforward and pretty, pretty simply, except for the occasional exceptions that you'll find. Um, but, but countering that is a, is a really an entire new world opening up of local journalism, of, of talent and skill. In fact, in Asia, they don't have a financial crisis in their media industry. They're growing like crazy. And, um, and, and this is a shift that we've been part of since... Uh, 20-odd years, and it is really a profound change in the way information is understood and who is valid to present that information. 20 years ago, when I had a nice 700 words from a guy from Sarajevo, and I tried to pitch it to uh, one of your predecessors in a newspaper, they'd look at me like I was absolutely insane. Now it's understood that somebody who is local may have a higher legitimacy. Mm. We have the same problems of validation. We have the same problem of credibility. We have same, all of those same problems. But the incredible thing, especially if you spend any time in Africa, it's exploding with skill. It's exploding with talent. It's exploding with innovation, in fact. In fact, technological innovation as well. So, um, and I think this is gonna, going to inevitably shift um, you know, our news priorities in, in many ways a good, a good sense. Why cannot Africans tell, tell the African story themselves? Um, and in many senses, it's a great compliment. We've always, always understood that the great international reporters do a terrific job, but they need a fixture. And that fixture is a journalist. Um, one of the huge and profound changes was when the New York Times, after their own ethical crisis some years ago, decided that they would actually put the names of the fixers at the yeah. bottom of the piece, and they would say they helped with the reporting. They didn't just drive the car. They didn't just, because their notebooks is, is really um, filled. And this is really terribly exciting, but they, they, they need all the help that any journalist needs. They need good editing, and they need training and skills. They are left in a more difficult environment in many respects. They have the advantage, of, in many ways, of being able to, to blend in because they're local. But uh, you mentioned um, either in conflict zones or corruption. Um, corruption is, in many ways, more difficult, more dangerous when you're in a post-conflict environment and you're reporting on corruption, because then you're really talking about a guy and his money mm. and his family, and then you're personally targeted. 
Um, but in conflict zones as well, um, we, we've, we've lost four journalists ourselves, three of them in Iraq. And, and um, you know, your opening question was, why do this? Mm. The lady who did this, uh, her name was Zahar, and, and we all told her not to go and do her last story. She couldn't, she had four kids. She couldn't help do the story. It was her country, and she couldn't help it. But she was per per personally targeted, and she was assassinated. I mean, I want to talk about this um, idea and argument that it's, you know, the, the risks are ever greater for journalists now, and that they are now... The, the kind of the, the, there's there's no kind of rules if there are any rules to do with to with war and what happens in war but now journalists are seen as legitimate targets by you you by, started by, that by that question sides. at the opening slide about um, about Marie and it's uh, anybody who knew her um, or anybody who read her it's it is a tragedy and um, I think she wouldn't want to claim that she was greater than any other journalist but she was bloody good. Mm. And, um, I would take issue, though, that, that, that you mentioned uh, it's a waste, it's rich too far. You talk to anyone like Marie or Anthony Lloyd from the Times, or, you know, and we were talking about it last night, I mean, uh, uh, the prices we've all paid. In fact, and it's often the question you ask, and I know uh, she would say this, you, you live life so intensely when you're covering those stories on the front line. Uh, it's like you live uh, a thousand lives. Uh, and I always was aware that if my life ended, I used to write letters to my mum just to let her know that it's, it's those who you leave behind who are suffering. You've, you've been having the most intense, incredible experiences in your life. And, it, and it, there's something, it's, there is in those moments, this is why I think people become adrenaline junkies, when you're witnessing such extreme life or death situations, it is like slightly you've been offered for a brief moment a glimpse into some wisdom. So, in fact, I always thought, if I died now, this is what I've lived. You know, one year in Afghanistan feels like a thousand years back in suburban England. I think the difference is, and Mary Colvin didn't have children, it's, as a father, I then thought, actually, now, if I leave behind two orphans, then that's, mm. it is selfish. <clears throat> so I think, up until you've got children, don't feel sorry, or was it a waste of a life? She, she, she lived a thousand lives, you know, uh, more than most of us do. Yes, so. but the, the, what, I, what I was conscious of is that after her death, <coughs> um, in demonstrations in Syria, placards were held uh, commemorating her and in memory of her and her uh, solidarity with Syria. Mm -hmm. And that was very touching at that very moment. But a couple of years later, with the, with the war grinding on and the Western response non-existent, but what is I mean, also, it all feels very, very sad, really. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's interesting, this idea of, you know, I guess it's, it sounds flippant, but is it worth it? You know, what effect did, did Marie's death have in Syria? Well, and, I mean, like, people, you know, say to me, was it worth losing your legs to take a photograph? And, and obviously, you know, there is no one image that is worth that. But the principle of why you do these things, I believe, is important and still is important. And, you know, getting back to your point about whether... You know, journalists and photographers are targeted more, it's, yeah. it's definitely changed. You know, you go back to, say, Don McCullen's era, there were stories of, of photographers kind of getting on the wrong side, ending up with, with the Viet Cong, Viet Cong, you know, passing them back. I mean, sometimes they were killed, but generally there was a sort of sense that photographers, journalists were needed to tell the story from both sides or to tell what was going on. Now with the advent of, of kind of, you know, easy little camcorders anybody can use, be able to put your own stuff on YouTube, um, people like the insurgents in Afghanistan don't need journalists to tell their story. So you kind of lost... That, that sense of... If, if you want to... Sorry, do you want to go? I'll just quickly... Just, a Rubicon was crossed, though, that tradi uh, f 
I mean, in a way, to answer quickly your question, does it make any difference? The fact that the, one of the photos you've shown is from the Crimea War, not this week, but 100 years ago, mm -hmm. clearly it hasn't, it's not going to stop war. Mm. But just briefly how journalists had previously been seen, like the Red Cross, you could, you could scuttle between yeah. front lines. And I used to, I remember in some wars, put my hand up and drum from side to side and say, don't shoot, yeah. <laughs> and they wouldn't shoot. Mm. That something changed radically. Uh, it was in Serbia, in mm. Sarajevo, and the Serbians rightly realised the Western journalists were pro the Sarajevo, so they started targeting. Mm. But it's actually in the West, when Colin Powell started talking about soft power and force multipliers in the war on terror, they included the media. Mm -hmm. And the media got behind that war in Iraq. And, and then Al-Qaeda, it was not them being... Uh, 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 extremists, they very logically realised the Western media were now part of the uh, war against them, yeah. and so they've officially targeted. Well, and also you become, you know, you, you can see the, the sort of evolution in, in blue sort of outfits. Yeah, exactly. you know, at the beginning of, of Afghanistan and, and so Iraq, everyone we, wore blue yeah. to say, "I'm a journalist." You know, big thing with press. Now nobody I know would, would wear that. They right. won't wear the absolute that's opposite. That's but in a way, that's that's allowed, that's because if you're on patrol, you'll be targeted. There's a famous cartoon from the Far Side called. It says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. And it's the, it's the, it's well. the, it's the deer with a heart. And, and I think media, we have a, we have a, tar we have a target yeah. now. Yeah. And that is a transformation. Marie's death really has had a profound impact on the, the, and, and, the ch and the continuing disaster in Syria. This is uh, perhaps the biggest war crime atrocity of the last, call it how many years you want. Certainly, you'd have to go back to major wars to get to the scale of what's going on in Syria. And it is so little covered, and that's really the, the, the core of the paradox right now of the problem of media coverage is Syria itself. Yeah. Syria was launched with the heyday of citizens journalism. Mm -hmm. We trained video journalists starting from 2007. In fact, I was wondering why we were doing it. All of a sudden, I realized why we were doing it. Um, so this is a revolution in many ways that started through citizen journalism, and we have a strong understanding that it's not international press or local press, but collaboration. Mm. All of these things we know, but right now it's a black hole, and mm. it's remarkable. It is remarkable that this, that this conflict is so undercovered, yeah. given the scale, not only the scale of the tragedy, but all of the innovations and all of the changes and all of the capacities that now exist with media and media technologies. And I think the paradox of, of Syria is the paradox of the new changes in the media because we do have more information than ever before. There is more capacity. There are more local sources. But on the other hand, we've got a black hole. Mm. But I would also say, I mean, you were saying whether or not, you know, there's a picture of Crimea, obviously it hasn't had an impact. I, I kind of, you know, a lot of people will say, to me, I had an exhibition once and somebody came in quite aggressively going, you know, you're not going to change the world. And I was kind of, well, I wasn't really intending to, it was just an exhibition. <laughs> um, but I was like, you know, if one person's opinions change, that's great. And, and yeah, in, I in a way, it's... we shouldn't stop, sorry. No, and I was going to say, in a way, it's a little bit like, um, you know, it's a wonderful life. You know, we have no idea of what impact our work does have. Yes, it'd be great to think photographs, films, words could stop war. They're not going to stop it. But if there was none of that reporting, would things be any better? Mm. I think they'd be a lot worse. Yeah. So what I think what, it is yeah. important. What was really interesting about... Um, I mean, Marie's case, a week before she died, she was so upset about the fact that her reports from Homs were behind a paywall, and she was uh, not technically literate enough to kind of stick it on a website herself, so she kept on asking all her pals, you know, how can, how can we get this story <clears throat> from behind this thing where no one's reading it? Mm. 
Um, that was her, so her feeling, evidently, was that those words were going to matter, that if somehow these words were in the public domain and everyone could see what the Assad regime was doing, then things would change. You know, you might say that's naive, but the impulse is, you know, the impulse is noble. Mm. Right? Exactly. I was going to say it's, it's, it's the counter So it may not change things, clearly, what has a stop, but it's precisely when it's, like now, it's, it's the darkest hour where it's having the least effect, where I think the responsibility of journalists is to do that. So it's, it's, it's very sexy when America's rolling into Iraq. That's not the really important, I don't feel. I would just avoid the, the media pack as, as they go in. I think, unfortunately for Syria, it's, it's come at the end of an 11-year period where the West has been at war. It's been, it's been compared to the 1970s, 80s. And, and unfortunately, I mean, I'm told by editors there's Afghan fatigue. I mean, Iraq's gone out of... There's more people being killed every day in Iraq last year than there were yeah. in 2005 when mm -hmm. it was on the front page. And in a way, it's... And so Syria's come after Libya, where there was big war coverage. It's gone on... And I think it's, we've gone through a very intense period, uh, more than a decade, where war has been on the front page. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a fatigue setting in, unfortunately. My, my favourite yeah. comment you get from editors is, it's not news anymore. You're like, well, it's not news anymore because you're not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, but it becomes... And it's our role to force these stories onto the front page. And we've all found in our experience uh, uh, that, in fact, uh, and most of my documentaries that have done well were the ones which they were told, I was told, forget it, we don't want it. They didn't, uh, and then you have to prove to them they're wrong and you can get an audience, you can get a readership. And you turn, the job is, is to make that piece, Central African Republic, no one's heard of, to, to them when they read it, it uh, you've achieved something if you, 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 you bring it to their do you attention. Get, do you get frustrated, I mean, as journalists, when you, you know, it's lifestyle now. That's what that's what sells magazines. That what that's what brings in advertising. You know, with the newspaper industries on its ass. You know, it's the you know war and images of war. You don't see them on the front pages of, of magazine supplements as much as you certainly used to. Does that frustrate you? Does that annoy you? Does that? I'm not frustrated because I get to write. You know. My piece. You're welcome, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if I couldn't write that piece, I would be frustrated. Well, it also relates to the changing uh, nature of the conflicts that we're having now. It isn't, it, we were worried about embedding on one side as opposed to the other side. Well, now there's six sides. And I, I, uh, it, it's, it's harder, it's more complicated. That makes it harder to tell. That's not letting the editor off the hook, but it is a problem. And there really isn't a good news component to it. There isn't a way forward. It is really depressing. There isn't a vision out of this. And there are these intractable, uh, localized, and highly complex co uh, conflicts um, are going to uh, combine with the meltdown in the media industry, combine with lack of budgets, combine with fatigue, mm. are going to make it much, much harder. But I, to I don't get find, and there's no, I've got no backup data evidence to back me up here, but <laughs> I think I've got this gut instinct. Like a true journalist. I don't <laughs> buy into this. Uh, the thing that uh, something rates, what people want as, uh, across the TV channels every night is a property show or a cooking show, and they don't want these other stories. Because it's, it's self-fulfilling, these beliefs. They, the BBC, ITV have these surveys. So they put on uh, stuff about the rest of the world at 11.30. So it's inevitably going to get less rating viewers than something they put on at 8. <coughs> and I remember seeing an interview with Francis Ford Coppola talking about in Hollywood, he was being told... It's the lowest common denominator. We make these films because that's what the audience wants. And he said that was almost an inspiration for him to go out and make The Godfather, 
and apocalypse now, these difficult... Uh, so he ended up make, proving them wrong, that you can make a critically acclaimed, complex film that's a fucking blockbuster. <laughs> and I've got this feeling, and, it, and it's been proved to a little point in my experience, where my documentaries put on at 10.30 at night, don't get an audience, but I, I had a film, I think you've got a clip, Fighting the Taliban, that went on at 8, and it beat all the property shows that day. Right. So, you know, uh, I think it's... I, I just don't have this feeling, that, and it's how you write it, how you photograph it. It's getting but people's I th attention, I think. <coughs> but I think it's well, part of it. Yeah, and, yeah, and it can be, it can rate. But if you ask people, I think people will always, in a sense, take the easy option. I mean, mm. if you say to somebody, do you want to read a story about you know, people getting killed in, in car, or do you want to read about David Beckham? And people probably, you know, your instinct in a way is to say, oh, David Beckham, because I don't want to be challenged by that. Mm. But they did a, a thing in, um, with some great Hollywood films, because a lot of films now, before it comes out, they'll have an audience sit and say whether they like, like the ending. Screening. And yeah, they'll, they'll reshoot <clears> the ending. And they tried it with a load of classic films. And everybody wants to change the endings because often the endings are sad. But right. that's what makes the film great. But equally, that's why you are upset by it. But your instinct would be to say, oh, at the end of Casablanca, I want more going off. Or, you know, well, this is, why this, the new, this is why the new structure of, of the information landscape is a challenge because the role of the editor... You're, you're, you're a dinosaur. We're all dinosaurs, but even as young as you are, you're still a dinosaur because in a, in a, in a world of clicking to your choice and a splintered and atomized audience, the, the, the role of the editor, which was the crucial role to present, is, is, is really taken away. But with away. so much and information... is focused on... But with so much information coming out, is it, not, is it not more Sorry. important to, to, filter, to filter that information? And isn't that the role of an editor? More, more, more British adults gain their information from the internet than from the press. That's fine. Now. Great. But the good stuff is still the stuff that is done by pros. Mm. I, that, I agree entirely with that. But the audience may not be finding it. Yeah, and again, so maybe well, when, say, the Sunday Times was at its peak in, in the 70s with documentary photography, there wasn't a lot of other choice in terms mm. of colour supplements. So you kind of were almost forced to read it. Mm. The fact is now it's choice so that people, you know, when they come home and there's a documentary on, but then there's something like Coronation Street which is just very easy to watch, which would you choose? Because there is so much choice. People will often take, I don't mean the easier option, but will take a sort of another so route. What, Social media algorithms are driven by advertising and, 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 and not by news values. What we're going to do now is, I want, what I think most people want to know is what it's like to be shot. So I think we're going we're we're <laughs> to roll some of your clips, I think, Sean. Um, so we can take a look at that. I soon regretted it. We're driving along a ridgeway. Should we get out? along the ridge and came under fire and had to get out of the car. These trenches, the Taliban were in these trenches about half an hour ago, an hour ago. 
And now we're in them. They're firing at us. Great. Sean, maybe you could just talk to us about that, about that clip, where you were, what was happening. I mean, it seemed pretty so it, uh, intense. That was in uh, Helmand province. Uh, and one thing I, I, I saw as a gift in, in my career was being handed these manna from heaven. So in Iraq, I made a documentary called Mission Accomplished. So Bush's comment, which was swallowed by most of the world's media, Mission Accomplished, before the war had really got underway. Afghanistan... That was Helmand province where the Labour government, uh, again, being handed something you just think is a gift on a plate as a journalist. The then Defence Secretary said uh, it was a peacekeeping operation because they felt they couldn't sell another war after Iraq. So the British going down to Helmand was called a peacekeeping operation, reconstruction, and he said, we hope to achieve our aims without firing a single shot. And then you start hearing reports in Kabul that it was a full-on war going down and the MOD weren't allowing... British journalists to cover it. And so you're hearing, we were all hearing that they, they were really the most intense, and it turns out the most intense uh, combat the British have been involved in since Korea, Korean War wasn't being covered. And this is where it's odd. You talk about this mass media. There have been so many things, you know, the, the, there were no coverage in Iraq of the insurgency at the beginning or of the combat in Afghanistan. So I went on an embed, but the MOD blocked it. So I got on that embed, which is why that clip starts with me in a white Pajero Jeep, because I was on the embed with the Afghan police, actually with the British, but the MOD wouldn't let me. Uh, and I saw, in that week alone, the, they broke all records in firing rounds and, and uh, calling in airstrikes, 57. And then I realised this. Also, you actually see, this is the one thing you see, as a, which you wouldn't see if you're back in London or reporting from a hotel, Tony Blair's grandiloquose foreign policy laid bare. You know, there was three Wimmicks, three uh, Land Rovers in this, holding this strategic town. And if one of those Land Rovers had been blown up, our foreign policy would have been fucked there. The, the Taliban, it was, a, it was a, supposed to be a day's operation. We were surrounded by about 800 Taliban, which is more than the, the ISAF had admitted were in Afghanistan fighting, just in that one village. Uh, and I realised at that point, that was 2006. They knew you were there. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I said, I ended it thinking, and Channel 4 said, Do you really want to end it with this comment? I said, because they just about won the battle and then had to withdraw because they, need, they needed those two Land Rovers somewhere else. And the wounded, there were so many wounded that week, but there weren't enough helicopters. Uh, and I, I ended it by saying, It feels like we won the battle, but are losing the war. And uh, it, with hindsight, it doesn't look such a. Uh, I wasn't really putting my neck out, but. One thing that's taught me covering the front lines, because you don't really find truths there. That's a misnomer, I think. So actually, it's when you reflect on it. I mean, you're talking about the photographer sitting back in the hotel, and you're talking about it when you're making your notes. So when you reflect on it, I suddenly realise, my God, these politicians in Parliament, literally, who, who've been voting for all these wars, whether, I don't even know if they voted on war, they avoid the votes. We've been sending our forces to war which is why now we're not coping with Syria uh, or the Crimea, because we've spent all our political capital and uh, what they call treasure and blood and, in these wars. And politicians back home clearly had no idea hmm. what was happening. And I knew the Taliban were a force to be reckoned with. So. Well, you, I mean, you did. Let's play this one more clip, and then, you, then we can just talk about a bit further about how hairy it can actually get.
rocket attack. Every time we think it's okay, we come under fire. This is always the worst moment because they're worried there's an ambush, that I may be ready or part of an ambush. And I'm terrified of numerous things, not least being shot or kidnapped. I was only expecting about six or seven Taliban to show up. Assalamu alaikum. This compound is now full of Taliban. Assalamu alaikum. Are they going to kill a goat or me? Some guy waving a knife saying he's going to kill Americans. As we entered the room, the commander joked about how they had taken a vote on whether to kidnap me, kill me, or let me interview them. Just tell us briefly, we're running out of time, we're going to take some questions, but just tell us briefly about what happened. Well, I think, like Giles, when you get, you step on a mine, and when I got kidnapped, I spent, I was uh, locked in a dark room for three months with an Afghan fixer uh, who, who was sure we were going to die. And we, we, uh, that was my moment where you think, is it worth it? And in fact, to answer you, to when you were talking about when people have asked you, is it worth it? I remember I sacrificed everything. I never saw it sacrificed. I was thinking I was having the best time of my life. But when I was locked in a dark room for three months, uh, being interrogated and told I was going to be executed the next morning, I really thought, fuck, you know, uh, I, I would quite happily burn my passport and never leave <laughs> home again, Great. if only I had that chance. Uh, with hindsight, having... Uh, I now look back, and I'm sure this is why I know exactly what, you know, I can answer with surety what Mary Colvin would say if she was here that I now look at my experience and think, you know, it was a, a privilege to, to, to have seen what I've seen and met the people I met and understood. You know, for the first time in my life when I was kidnapped, I was listening to a World Service report about a woman in Somalia living in fear of that kick on the door. Mm. And then at night, the Taliban were kicking the door and put a knife to my throat. And for the first time in my life, I knew what it was like to live in fear, genuinely. And, and it was an eye-opening Damascene moment where I thought, you know, we are just, it is just a thin bubble here, and it's not much difference. But uh, I don't regret anything I did. Um, and it was the great lesson in life, but if anyone offered to give me that lesson <laughs> in life, I'd shoot them. That's great. Um, just to say that, yeah. I just want to share my experience of coming under, under fire for mm. the first time, um, and, and actually how the sort of the banality of, of war sometimes and the, the chaos and all the rest of it. It's the, you know, people often ask, what was it like the first time you were fired at? And, and the truth is, I was in South Sudan at a Medicine Sans Frontieres compound, and we were in mud huts, and there'd been some fighting going on with two tribes that were literally either side of this compound. So they weren't attacking the compound, but they were sort of firing across it. And obviously these mud huts, the bullets would go straight through. So uh, MSF had sort of got all these barrels, filled them up with sand, and made a sort of circle in the middle. And the idea was, if you heard one shot, that was fine. If you heard more than one shot, you had to run and hide behind these, these barrels of sand. And I was, this was, you know, 10 years ago, I was just starting out, and I was trying to, you know, be a bit confident, like, that's, that's fine, I, you know, down with all this, and 
And I go into my mud hut, and I put on the Prodigy really loudly on my, my iPod. <laughs> and I'm lying there, and a gunfight happens, and I miss the whole thing. <laughs> and I come out, literally walking out, everyone's hiding behind these things, like peering. And I'm just walking by, go, why is everybody like, <laughs> ducking down like that? And then they kind of go, well, you must be really used to this stuff. And I'm going, what stuff? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. wow. <laughs> so that was actually my first experience yeah. of, of gunfire. But right. Can I just quickly right. say, right. it's not Last a death point. Wish. Then we're going to take some questions. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's what these moments remind you of in very intensely when you've been shot at very closely or you've gone through a near-death experience is you really appreciate the fragility and uh, the wonderful thing of life, not, not the death. So we're not war junkies, death junkies. Uh, if you are but you end up just appreciating the, mm. the wonderful... Life junkies. All right. All right, OK, we're going to take some questions. I'm sure there are some, some uh, burning questions to be asked from you guys out there. Yes, over there. There we are. And that person a microphone. Hi, um, Chris Perry. I'm actually a practitioner in this business, as you know. Um, uh, I think I'd like to make one reflection and, and perhaps ask a question. The reflection is that actually we're not war-weary uh, with regard to Syria. I think what the public is weary about is actually fighting, actually getting nowhere. There's no positive result. The lesson from Vietnam is that the American public didn't mind taking casualties as long as something concrete was being achieved. And I think the Syrian problem is the prospect of yet another conflict where we really can't see what we're trying to achieve, who we're trying to support, and is it worth the blood and treasure going into it. I, I don't think there's actually a war fatigue as such. The Americans would go in uh, tomorrow if they thought they knew what they were going to achieve uh, and, and could actually achieve something. So that's my reflection. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, I've worked with journalists in my professional career all, all the time, and every time I've entered a war zone with journalists, I thought, well, what are they there for and what use are they to me? And I think, objectively, what I need journalists to do in any conflict where I'm a commander is I need you to convey understanding um, where I think I, I've had a problem in the past with journalism on the front line is, A, I've had to protect them where they've gone beyond where I can protect them. <laughs> That's the first thing. Uh, and there's this sort of journalistic space that you have to inhabit where I can't reach into. It's rather like humanitarian space. And secondly, in going beyond conveying understanding and actually taking a side, you actually make politicians misbehave. Uh, and and they, you, you then become part of the problem where a politician feels something must be done rather than the right thing should be done. And Syria is a classic case here. There's a drumbeat of get involved, get involved, uh, which comes from journalism, uh, and uh, our politicians, I know, feel this. So my plea to you and my question is, do you think your profession is about conveying understanding or is it actually to promote a particular story or line which does, in fact, make politicians misbehave. I mean, my, my personal thing is, is when I go to, to conflict areas, I'm not particularly interested in the fighting. I'm there to try and tell the stories of civilians caught up in a conflict, um, because I think often their voice goes unheard. And, you know, as much as possible, I try and act merely as advocate for those people to tell their stories. Um, I actually had an exhibition in, in Parliament last year and it was about the only time I ever felt like I finished my, my job. Because, you know, often when you meet people and you're t t sort of taking their photographs or interviewing them, they will say, show this to your leaders or show this back home. Mm. Um, and, and I came back and, and this series of pictures of, of Afghans, injured um, civilians, uh, appeared in the waiting room where they wait before they go in to, to vote. So only MPs can be in that, that room. And it took a few ballots before enough MPs agreed to have it there. Um, and for me, you know, that was that was my job done in that I'd taken these stories 
and I'd put them there in front of the decision makers. And I didn't expect any of them to sort of suddenly look at it and go, oh, I didn't realize war was bad. But I felt like I'd at least done my, my job. And as far as possible, I do that in a neutral way. But obviously, I go there and I see civilians getting blown up and I get angry about it and I want people to see, to see that. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I think we all get angry at that, even in the profession. Um, but my problem is that the media today, uh, and all forms of media that you mentioned, drive strategy to an extent that actually our politicians... It's not deliberate for us. No, no, I'm just no, I'm not saying... I, sorry, I, I find it slightly worrying what, what your question implies, which is when you talk about understanding, which I feel we all want to... We, I mean, I very much feel the British soldiers want to say, but it, <coughs> I, I'm slightly worried that you're implying, yeah. when you talk about making uh, politicians behave badly, it seems to be saying you're, we want, you want journalists to understand this, the constraints of Western power and military and what's in our interest and not to cause trouble and make the politicians no, go... The I made. Oh. You made the point earlier about politici politicians not understanding what the front line is like. Yeah. Every soldier, sailor and airman would, would actually say that. Uh, but, I can, but I can tell you that politicians are incapable of filtering the information that you give them. Uh, either from the front line or from uh, the media. Uh, and I'm afraid the quick-fire journalism, let's react to the latest thing, let's, let's keep up with the pace, let's respond immediately regardless. Part of our Syria policy is failing because politicians fail to look at the context correctly, mm. uh, partly because Marie was killed and partly because you guys weren't able to get in there. And it's this failure to understand context, Afghanistan, Iraq, that makes our politicians... Um, do things they shouldn't and deploy forces. And John Reid's comment, everybody in the Ministry of Defence fell about laughing when he said, yeah. go into hell, man, like that. And giving, giving uh, uh, the British forces, I think it was 12 helicopters, wasn't it? Four which couldn't uh, fly I, in the I was, I was the policy director at the time, believe me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a full admiral because of what I said at the time. But I thought it was very important <laughs> that I point out that lie, whereas the MOD were asking me for understanding not to blow the fact that it was a farce. But, but you see, what I'm what, saying to you as a military commander is please convey objective understanding. That's well, the best one of the points now. we've been trying to underline is that the, the word media uh, carries a lot of baggage there. It's, and it's a very complex yeah. universe. And, and I think you've got on the stage some people who, who may not agree with the point of, of blaming the media, but certainly trying to use reflection, consideration, and deep understanding and thought. But in the, in the, in the, in the atomized media environment that we have now, um, and the, the diversity of sources um, of, of many non-professional, um, it is, a, it is a, a, a maybe more hyper-driven environment than, than it might have been otherwise. And I think... Um, not, 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 to, not to put the burden... I think the, the, burden, the journalist's job is actually not to make the policy, but just to lay forth the facts of what they see, as, as, uh, as you've I said. Just, just one final thing for Chris. It's not our job to be useful to you. No, I, and I don't want you to be. All I want is for you to convey what the context really is, yeah, but okay. particularly for okay, politicians. Yeah, we're, 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 we're all agreeing oh, yeah. 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 violently. Let's have another I'll, question. I'll just give you one example right. of where... One last where, comment, Christina. Can I just give you one example where, where there was a, a direct impact? Robert Fisk in the Balkans War, writing for The Independent, uh, distorted NATO policy to the extent we ended up bombing people. Um, and, you know, not good, actually. Um, and it does happen. You know, and all I ask and I say is for understanding so that we can get our politicians to direct our armed forces to protect civilians and to do all the other things that they do well. That's all. Okay, brilliant. All right, let's have another question. Um, this guy just down here. Hi, my, my, name, my name's Nihal. Um, I got a sense from when you were talking that you're almost 
self-defeat is about the future of your industries and just listening to what you were talking about well just saying things like that the uh, that editors and and commissioners don't see the worth or think that normal people are not interested and i just wondered if there's research that has been done to show because i think you're all incredibly brave individuals and it, it saddens me to think that a 14 or 15 year old wouldn't be inspired to be like you guys because people are telling the world that that British people would rather see Beckham on TV than see Sean something like you did, which I don't believe is true either, like you. But I just wonder, is there research being done? Because I'd hate to think that a new generation, a young generation Fact. of British people... I've got a 14 and 15-year-old, and the last thing I want them to do is anything near what I do. But um, it's a changing environment. In fact, it's an incredibly exciting time. What's the problem is the structure of media and the structure of news is shifting underneath it. But the, the capacity to report, the capacity to gather, the, 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 the scale of information available now compared to 20 years ago is, 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 is huge. Just it requires a, a bit of effort and a huge amount of media literacy to, to fight your way through it. But the structures of media in, in 10 years are going to be very different from what they were 10 years ago. There's certainly still... From, from I think, well, well, because it's uh, self, you don't want to stand up and say <laughs> what I did makes the world of difference. I mean, but I think it's from a, from a very vague, from a, a really irrelevant point of view. I'm a DJ, if I go into a club, I want to rock a crowd. I don't go in there thinking, well, maybe I might not actually make any difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And no, that, that's I, part I, of the war correspondence stick. We've talked yeah. about earlier about the machismo. One right. of them is to it. It's. I mean, when you were saying, uh, it's you were slightly embarrassed to admit it got under your skin. We were all slightly embarrassed to take ourselves too seriously because within that core. But uh, it's actually. I mean, I think, and I'm sure all of us because we've all done lots of types of journalism. Mm. I, I think it was the most wonderful privilege in the world. Uh, and it, it's always been a struggle, and I think it always will be. I mean, the irony is, uh, uh, you rely on on. Patrons, you know, D D Dylan sitting here. Uh, I I've got a documentary which is in the Library of Congress, considered a historical document, but it wouldn't have been made if a, a British magazine hadn't sent me to Baghdad on a whim. Mm. Well, well, and it will always be that, and it will always. But I think there's still yeah. an appetite for those stories. And I, mean, I think it is. Well, since you mentioned uh, teenagers, the most one of the most inspiring people I've ever worked with, of course, was a 12-year-old teenage girl in the Swamp Valley. At mm. that time, nobody knew who Malala was. But she was one of our trainees. And she is exactly the example of somebody who was not a parachute journalist. No. And she didn't do it for journalism purposes. She did it because she lived there and she saw what was happening in her village. She suffered ultimately, but she was just going to school. Now, this, she's been this kind of lady is, my, my son, she was at, is an inspiration. Uh, uh, a conference at Wembley Arena last week. And uh, London schools, there were thousands that went to Wembley Arena. And Malalai got up and spoke. And my 11-year-old came back and said he was inspired. So mm. I, I think we are okay. positive yeah. for the future. And right, it's well, exciting as well. As, as, like, as a photographer, the last story I did was in Zatari camp a couple of weeks ago. And now I see that go online. And you, know, you get emails and messages from people in Afghanistan, in Iran, in Iraq, sending me messages. People are seeing that in a way that they never would have before. Mm. I think it's just hard to make a living from it and mm. support the work you're doing. Yeah. But actually, it's great because as a storyteller, you get the message out okay. easier than ever. Let's have, we've got time, I reckon, for one more question. So let's have right at the back, you put your hand up first. 
I hope it's a question. It's also an observation. The devastating critique here is on the quality of our politicians. How can we do something about that? And I understand that's not your job either, but the, the despair, I feel, is less about the inspiration of young people. I think you are inspiring. But what are we going to do about the political class if, if what's been said is true? Come I have on, no idea. Hold them to account. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was called to Parliament to give uh, evidence that... Now, this is a Foreign Affairs Select Committee. They're supposed to be specialists. And when I was mentioning Helmand, where they'd sent British soldiers to be killed for British, they, they didn't know where it was. And I had to pause and say, you know, I was talking about the tribalism in Pakistan and these experts, RMPs, who... who this, you know, who are making decisions. And what I realise is, if they know nothing, if they know fuck all about foreign policy, what's it like with NHS and schools? That, that, you know, <laughs> I don't think they know anything. And I, I have found it's been the most depressing the war on terror. Uh, it's, I felt like I entered into some Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass. Uh, when I was in Baghdad, when people running Baghdad knew nothing, you know, and they were, and I always believed, this is where Hollywood conspiracy movies, I've realised, they always imply, the conspiracy movies, that there is this evil genius uh, people running the world, and I wish that was the case, because there's some, you know, some of the stupidest people I've met. <laughs> Maybe we can just finish by giving, you know, let's give some hope to the, to the young <laughs> folk out there. That was my can, positive Right, okay. <laughs> can we give, you know, one piece of advice you'd give to a, to a fledgling journalist who's thinking about becoming a war correspondent? Maybe each of you can do it. Mm. Giles? Uh, watch where you step. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Tony? <laughs> hmm, hard to beat that one. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know where to say. Um, I, re I wouldn't advise it as a career, but I, I think that the, um, the commitment to uh, tell your story of your community and your challenges uh, remains as important as ever. Ed? I would say that I, this isn't the only type of journalism I do, you know, but the stories are interesting, right? Life is lived in a more vivid way in places which are a bit off the grid and there's bad stuff happening. And one day, as Sean said, watching something really fascinating happening is worth a hundred yeah. boring days of covering whatever it is else that you could be covering. There's, no, there's basically nothing like it. Sean? Well, I, I would perhaps give the counter thing. My wife, ex-wife, was a fashion journalist, uh, uh, and I'd done Iraq. thought it was very important to, 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 to uncover that truth. And I went to Afghanistan, and she spends her life writing about the new beauty products. She said... Didn't you do war last year? <laughs> uh, there we go. Can there I just, you go. Can I just say, actually... Yeah, yeah, a serious comment. I would honestly say, you know, when I went back, it was 18 months after I got injured, I was back in, in Afghanistan, and people were saying to me, why would you want to go back? Why would you carry on? And I can honestly say, for me, I, I felt honoured and privileged to do the work that I do. Yeah. And, and clichéd, maybe we're not supposed to say it, but I do genuinely believe it can make a difference, and that's why I keep doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me personally, it's been a privilege to, to share the stage with you guys. So thank you, Giles, Tony, Ed and Sean. Thanks for listening, everyone. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.